0: Listeners, welcome to Itihasa, an Indic History Podcast and you are listening to episode 35 of the Season Vijayanagara. In the last episode, we had looked closely at the Nayankara system within the Vijayanagara empire and its gradual evolution since the late 1400s. We also looked at the interesting, tense and yet close relationship or should one say a partnership between Sri Krishna Devaraya and his chief minister, Timma. We had seen how the great Raya had special copper coins minted after his coronation, in which the Kannada legend Krishnadeva on the obverse and Timmarasaguru on the reverse was inscribed. This is one-of-a-kind event and a unique coin with the name of the emperor and his prime minister appear together. And then we also look at the various activities undertaken by the Naikas towards the empire building in the name of the rayas of Vijayanagara. We then saw how foreign chroniclers marveled at the lack of a codified taxation and revenue system in Vijayanagara. In spite of which, the empire ran like a well-oiled machine with immense riches filling the coffers of the royal treasury. We had ended the previous episode by beginning to look at the political machinations coupled with the powerful incentives invented by the rayas of Vijayanagara to keep the powerful subordinate Nayakas under their thumb. Finally, we also saw how the Rayas were just as likely to be under the threat of rebellion from members of their fictive family as much as from the biological family. Hence, the Nankara system which hinged upon the Raya and the Nayaka relationship unfolded within a political atmosphere defined by loyalty and rebellion. In this final episode, let us pick up where we left last time and even in this one, I'll still be referring to Christopher Chekuri's fantastic paper on the Nayankara system. If you remember, in the last episode, we had come across the concept of Komara or Komaram which translates into political sons. The Komara developed fictional discourses of the family around the figure of Raya or Nayaka. In short, these political sons took the place of biological sons in these discourses. As per the inscriptions, they served as agents, as military subordinates, as well as a class of sons, called as Kumara Varkam, who were ritually and effectively bound by loyalty oaths to their Raya or superior Nayakas. The inner tension in the Nayaka world was between the role of a Kumara and Nayankara. To be a kumara meant the naika was part of an inner circle of service elite and to be a nayankara partner implied having access to and share of political power along with the rayas. So there was this simmering tension between the paths of mobility and loyalty and this resonated deeply during the period in question. That tension between service and partnership between the Kumara and Nayankara was the centre of most intense activity of inscriptional gifts during the 16th century. This testified to a Nayaka culture of loyalty and devotion towards their superiors. The story of Nayankara as a practice that stretched across family, revenue and empire is best exemplified in the life and career of persons like Timma and Aliyaramaraya. Ramaraya. Timma was an important donor of Nayankara tenures to other Nayakas in the empire. As a member of this Salwa family, he was part of a wider kin network that was actively involved in the distribution of Nayankara shares to others. In short, Timma was a central node in the Nayaka revenue apparatus during the early 16th century. And Timma's Nankara portfolio is most likely the reason for his prominence at the court, instead of it being the other way round. One interesting story in the 17th century chronicle, Tanjavuri Andhra Rajula Charitra, which translates to History of Tanjavur's Andhra Kings, testifies to the same culture of loyalty and rebellion. In it, two commanders of the Vijayanagara Emperor, a father-son duo, embody the two poles of the political spectrum. The father Nagama goes against the orders of the Raya by taking over the kingship of Madurai in order to recover his investments. His son Vishwanatha remains loyal to the emperor and successfully defeats his own father in a pitched battle. He then captures and chains his own father for his treasonous rebellion and hence fulfilling his duty and obligation to the emperor. Though the text was composed over a hundred years after the events it narrates, the themes of money and ethics, self-interest versus loyalty, tension between nayankara and Komara are symbolic of the politics of the empire during the 16th century. The nayankara model of tenured administration enabled the rapid mobilization of revenue and military forces in a manner unprecedented up to that point in history. Not to mention the monetization of state building activity. This made possible the incredible military successes of Vijayanagara rayas in the first half of the 16th century. Familial and succession politics of the empire constantly reproduce new political and kin alliances. In a world shaped by succession, struggles and dynastic politics, shifting alliances made and unmade the Nayaka fortunes. With each new struggle at the royal court, an entire chain of political hierarchy stood to gain or lose. In such a political environment, Nayakas never completely left their local power bases. It was in their interest, at all times, to maintain both a local affiliation and a courtly profile. By some accounts, the Nayankara holders paid up to half of their revenue to their superiors and sought to develop kin and marital relationships with the Raya's family. In the court of Emperor Krishnadevaraya, the Portuguese chronicler Domingo Pais observed that several of the courtiers were his father's-in-law. Hence, the Nayankara holding Nayakas were not only agents of the court and the empire at large but were also consolidating their positions through kinship and matrimonial alliances. At the end of each royal succession conflict, the Nyankara tenures had to be reassigned, an aspect that led to further rivalries. The rise of Alia Ramaraya is a classic example of a political career made in the world of succession struggle. Like Saluva Timma, during a career that spanned over 50 years, Ramaraya held titles such as Karyakarta and Pradhani and gave Nayankaras to many other Nayakas. As a testament to the considerable porosity between the Hindu and Islamic Sultanate polities in the Deccan, Ramaraya served under the Kolkanda Sultans before joining the service of Shri Krishnadevaraya. Soon after, Ramaraya married Krishnadevaraya's daughter and embarked on a political career that witnessed him making several attempts as a power broker and kingmaker in the capital. Before finally becoming the powerful regent of Vijayanagara, and turning the emperor Sadasi into a mere ceremonial puppet by the 1550s. And with it, he ushered in the fourth and final Vijayanagara ruling dynasty of the Arabidus. The twin institutions of Komara and Nayankara continued to plague the Arabidu dynasty, especially after the debacle at Tallikota and murder of Ramaraya at the hands of Sultan of Ahmednagar. The difficulties are illustrated really nicely in the case of the succession struggles of 1614-1616 to 1616 CE when the dying king Venkata II chose his nephew Sriranga II over his adopted son. The adopted son through his over-ambitious queen Obayamma and it was she who helped sow the seeds of civil war. As a hand-picked successor, the nephew acceded to the throne. But without the backing of three powerful Nayakas, Jaggaraya, Timmanayaka and Macharaya, who preferred the adopted son instead. Also, Jaggaraya was the brother of the widowed queen of the dead king. So he had the enough motive to dethrone the nephew who had acceded to the throne. Most importantly, these disgruntled Nayakas refused to part with the nayankara assignments they had held from Venkata II's time and instead plotted with Jaggaraya to raise up the latter's nephew to be king. Finally, leading to a gruesome regicide and a dramatic showdown between the two powerful Nayaka factions. The ensuing power struggles led to a grinding dynastic conflict that engulfed major Nayaka families of the empire. Throughout the history of Vijayanagara, Succession struggles involved more than an attempt to replace an old king. In the thick of these struggles, a heady mix of loyalties, matrimonial and kin relations and Nayankara tenures were at stake. Again, Nayankara tenures alone did not completely explain the complexity of their political relationships and loyalties. Several of those who contested Venkata II's chosen successor But themselves important political allies of the Arabidu family and retained considerable power through their marital relations into the ruling house of the Arabidu dynasty. Now that we understand the importance of familial lineage politics and household property regimes in the Nayankara system, let us then revisit the Ikta system employed by the Indo-Islamic Sultanates that we touched upon briefly in the last few episodes. Ikta was first practiced in the region north of the river Krishna with the arrival of the Delhi Sultans during the 13th century. And it was further reinforced by their successors, the Bahamani Sultanate, who were the arch-rivals of Vijayanagara, like we saw in the Foundation series. If you haven't heard the Foundation series yet, then you are missing out on some dramatic backstory. That sets the stage for most of this season. So do check it out. So under the Delhi Sultans, ikta aided their expansion in the Deccan and in the consolidation and absorption of the defeated kingdoms and their elite. In the Deccan, the Bahmanis who had revolted against the Tughlaqs in Delhi in 1347 CE again handed out iktas in towns and lands to 16 of their closest confederates who were required to maintain troops, attendants, horses, and elephants proportionate to their rank. Unlike the version of Ikta, which depended on elite slaves in North India, Central Asia, and Turkic world, Ikta and Deccan, as instituted by the Bahmani Sultanate, depended on the trusted confidants of the emperor who were free. The Bahamini Sultanate used Ikta as an instrument of military expansion, in areas that were not yet in their control suggesting ikta was a frontier institution used to induce commanders to seize control over contested areas under the bahmanis ikta served to integrate the elite into the empire an empire into the agrarian landscape hence the deccan variation of ikta was adjusted to cater to a mostly indian and agrarian landscape from its original dependence on the slave-military structure that was practised in the Turko-Persian world. While the elite migration between Vijayanagara and Deccan Sultanates is an indication of the near translatability of the Nayaṅkara and Ikta systems, they both were still different. The political elite of the Deccan moved between the multiple polities in search of revenue and military assignments panning their political resumes in the always unfolding familial, lineage and succession conflicts of the Deccan. For example, Ali Ramaraya himself was an extraordinary political migrant who had initially worked for the Golconda Sultan and then later married into Vijayanagara royalty. It is likely that he held his Nayankara tenure alongside the Ikta, which then indicates that nowhere in his rise to prominence does he appear to have been hindered by the different politico-administrative and revenue systems. Another example we have is the political career of Ainul Mulk Jalani, an influential figure who moved seamlessly across the Hindu-Muslim boundary between Vijayanagara Nankara and the Sultanate's Ikta. He was known to have later become very close to Ali Ramaraya, and had gained the stature of a premier nayankara holder at Vijayanagara. In many of its key elements and obligations, nayankara holders were structurally similar to ikta holders. And such similarities were shared through the cultural translation of political systems, suggesting a possibility of distinctive Indic adaption of foreign imported cultural and political institutions. Having said that, like I indicated earlier, they both had similarities but were still distinct. And it would be a mistake to find both synonymous with each other or to read the sense of one into the other. At Vijayanagara, the role of the agrarian cultural imaginary. In sociology, imaginary is a set of values, institutions, laws, and symbols through which people imagine their social whole. So, the role of lineage politics in household property regimes played an important role in shaping Nayankara into an institution distinct from ikta. The inscriptions confirm the role of agrarian cultural imaginary through the use of material exchanges, elaborate gifting customs for accruing punyam or a good karma for the emperor and superiors. Concepts like Dayabhaga which is co partner share, and kattanam, that we saw earlier, and palu, which is divisible property. All of this points to the elevation of the discourses of property as instruments of governance. And this is a big departure from the political models that shape the ikta system, practiced in the rival deccan sultanates. Having said that, Nayankara, like the early versions of the ikta, was also an important means of integrating newly conquered lands. While in Nikta the focus was on economic annexation of the newly conquered lands by hook or crook into the empire, with Nayankara the primary focus was on restoration of order and this was one of the most important duties of the newly assigned Nayankara holders. The Nayankara holders hence aided extensively in military mobilization during conquest and during post-conquest, they aided in integration and restoration. It was a very constructive process unlike many destructive conquests where economic and cultural pillage was the name of the game. It is then not a surprise to find that the rise and decline of the Dayankara practices closely followed the arc of the Vijayanagara Empire between the 1480s and 1620s. Interestingly, the Nankara system started unravelling after the Battle of the Lakota in 1565 CE where the Vijayanagara Empire was struck by some serious blows by the Deccan Sultanates. After which the economy and politics of the empire became increasingly oriented towards the local and weakened the imperial centre. The emboldened Nayakas then contributed to this increasing localization by remitting and donating vast amounts of revenues into the temples, Brahmins, corporate groups, guilds and villages. While the Naikars did this earlier too, the difference in post the Likota Vijayanagara was the scale of these donations increased substantially. And they did these donations or remissions in their own names instead of the emperor's name and hence building their own reputations in their assigned Nyankara provinces. The side effect of this trend turned out to strengthen the local provinces significantly and the cost of the imperial centre. Political and economic weight of the empire shifted away from the court to the local provinces. Much of the wealth and resources moved to the locality in the intensely competitive environment of the Nayaka politics. This episode wouldn't be complete if we didn't look at the Nayankara system from the perspective of conquest. The rayas through their conquests and by providing Nayankaras to their Nayaka subordinates. The rayas of Vijayanagara set in motion a complex reordering of the economic, social and political functions of the locality. Vijayanagara's Telugu inscriptions reveal multiple layers of such reordering. Many of these conquests were viewed as an attempt to restore order to an otherwise degenerate and sorry state of Hindu temples and institutions. This self-conception of Rayas and nayakas as restorers of order and balance is evident in almost all of the records of gifts to temples and villages. The restoration was on the basis of bringing back the customs, traditions and conventions of the locality. In this sense, the restoration of temple rituals and of the deities in the temples, the construction of temples, the provision of the necessary revenue sources for proper conduct of rituals and ceremonies all took place under the idea of restoration. Restoring ruined temples was a frequent undertaking of the Nayakas. As the number of Nayankara holding Nayakas increased, so did their attempts to renovate and refurbish the temple ruins to a better condition. Finally, Chakuri in his fantastic paper concludes that Nayankara is inseparable from the dynamics of empire-making, summarizing the distinctive influence of Nayankara at Vijayanagara would be akin to an attempt to summarize capitalism in modern times. Nayankara's decisive influences can be found everywhere in the 16th century Vijayanagara. From the expansion of military and agrarian frontiers to religious trade and market developments. It was an institutional and economic partnership that enabled the Vijayanagara rayas and nayakas To expand their military resources, deepen the economic sphere, and reach into the far corners of the peninsula. Nayankara was effectively sovereignty in practice, which articulated the continual claims of the Nayakas as partners in the world empire of Vijayanagara. For 21st century progressive modernistas to apply modern objectifications of the rural and pre modern by looking through teleological lenses and labeling it as some crude, peasant or feudal system would be not only ignorant and unfair, but also denying the system its capacity to articulate kingship and sovereignty. And with this, we shall end this episode and the third and final part of the Vijayanagara Lankara System mini-series. I sincerely hope the listeners enjoyed learning about the Nayankara legacy of Vijayanagara. If you did please hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review wherever it is that you are listening. A huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. I hope to see you soon in the next episode. Till then, this is Narendra Vikram, your host and narrator signing off. Hope you have a great week ahead.